0: Dr. Dale on quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains
1: Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian
0: Sons Outfitters. Well hello everybody and welcome to Dr. Dale on Quail. This is a terrific podcast month with topic of great interest I think regarding research in quail, wildlife habitat and what's happening in the world of quail research. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau and always with us to help us do that is Dr. Dale Rollins. And Dr. Rollins has a special guest with us today to talk about those projects. Dr. Rollins, I'll turn it over to you.
2: Thanks Gary, I appreciate you holding down the uh the radio back there on location i am uh, in albany texas uh, under a very nice starlit sky tonight and on location and talking to uh, one of my former graduate students brad kubechka and we're going to get into brad's history in just a minute but uh, brad's been working with us out at the research ranch uh, in some capacity since about 2013 and now he's working on his PhD down at the University of Georgia, and we're going to cover that span of his life as it relates to various quail projects. Brad, uh, give us a little bit of history on you. Where are you from?
1: Well, first off, um, thanks, Dr. Ollins for the introduction, and thanks for having me. Um, I'm originally from Central Texas, a smaller town called Flatonia. Um, originally growing up, we didn't have quail of any species, uh, a whole bunch. My dad talked about them in the 1980s, early 1980s, having them but uh, they were a relic um, when I grew up there and, and so I went to uh, in my undergrad I got at Tarleton State and I was interested in doing something different as far as a research slash uh, internship or research slash management internship and about the same time I was uh, heading up the wildlife society at Tarleton State and looking for uh, you know different speakers and so on and so forth and that's uh, how I found you and of course you remember I I reached out and emailed you and asked if you'd be a a guest speaker, speak about some of the research that has been done at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. And uh, I think you had mentioned uh, that would be great, but actually I'd really like to talk about the importance of internships um, and where they can get you as an undergrad. And and so you went ahead and did that. And uh, I went ahead and applied for that internship in 2013 and was uh, fortunate to... uh, obtain that and and that's where my odyssey with the research ranch uh, began in 2013
2: and what a fortuitous event it was for the rolling plains quail research foundation Uh, if you think back to that movie signs that starred mel gibson nothing happens by accident and and i'm kind of a firm believer in that so uh, it it was destiny that brad and and mine paths crossed and uh, we've certainly been the beneficiary of that and I look forward to him. He's one of the young guns in uh, quail research right now, and he's he's doing a great job. So, uh, again, Brad came out and served as an intern for a couple of years, I think, two years, and then you started your master's work in about, what, 2015 or so?
1: Yeah, so I started my master's research in 2015. 2013, I worked in some capacity at the research ranch and then partly on a translocation project that was going on in Stevens and Shackleford County with the grad student, uh, Michelle Downey. And uh after she had went back down to South Texas to complete some of her coursework, I was going to school at Tarleton, and so I kind of kept up with some of those birds. We did the call counts. I was coordinating some of those um some of those counts, and I continued on a uh, second year. Um, if you remember we were uh, having a discussion on a uh, this is also a point in my undergraduate career where I thought, well, maybe uh what are the things that would most benefit benefit me as an individual to um to develop? And at the time I felt like I had a good uh, grasp on management and, and, and some of that stuff, but I wanted a, a, a better uh, experience and um, better, um, I guess, a leg hold with research specifically. So I asked you if I were to come back um, for a second year internship in 2014, uh, could I do a research project uh, of my own and, and start delving into more of the research side of things as opposed to management? And you said, sure, I think I have an idea. And, and we ended up doing a little turkey project uh, up in the panhandle um, on uh, Mr. Pickens's place, uh, who's been a, a big, great big donor for uh, both the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch and Park City's quail.
2: Let me just interrupt you there just a minute. What precipitated the interest in that turkey project was if you've ever talked to anybody from Kansas or Missouri specifically, and you talk about what's wrong with your quail there, they'll often point to the increase in turkeys and the decrease in quail happening simultaneously. And so they immediately make that correlation cause and effect, which, as you know, is a big error in statistics. But we had the opportunity there to really look at, at turkey diets, and because those, these many of these people think that turkeys are velociraptors just devouring quail chicks and disrupting nests, and so it's not many opportunities we'd have to go in and really test that experimentally but uh, kind of lay out what we studied up there on Mr. Pickens's place.
1: Right. So as you mentioned, uh, going back and really about, I guess, 1997, when uh, Fidel Hernandez did some of his master's research, he documented a, a wild turkey visiting some of his dummy nest sites. And of course, you often hear these stories of, of wild turkeys eating chicks. But we wanted to document maybe how often that occurred um, or how frequent um, that occurred in which uh, we kind of... Opportunistically, wanted to sample these diets and see not only what were they were they eating quail chicks. In fact, um, what com- what composition was that of their diet? Uh, were they actually actively seeking these things out, um, or did they just opportunistically grab one if they happened to you know be in the vicinity of a brood? And uh, so, what I decided to do, and, and we decided to do as part of that project, when we said, "Well, we're going to be collecting these turkeys, we might as well look at more than just quail chicks. We might as well look at most of the diet, um, look at shared parasites between um, the two species, wild turkeys and bobwhite." Um, so I, I tried to take that opportunity to make it more into in just a more into just a research project about. Uh, quail chicks but also a general diet um, aspects of turkeys and also shared parasites of uh, turkeys and bobwhite on that area.
2: Well now for those folks listening in Missouri and Kansas you looked at how many turkeys and what percentage of them had quail chicks or quail eggs in their crop?
1: We looked at 93 uh, full turkey tracks and, and none of them had evidence of eggs or chicks in any of them.
2: So you're saying uh, in a myth-busters mode uh, we did not support the idea that turkeys were were predators on quail chicks at this particular time. This was done during when? During the peak of nesting season, was it not?
1: Right, so it was done at the, in the peak of a nesting season, and uh, so I, I would say, yeah, they weren't large predators. Of course, our sample was just, it's a small snapshot of what they ate that day. But from what we saw, I mean, there weren't any in there, so we wouldn't consider that a large composition of the diet. And uh, from what we saw, the answer was no.
2: Okay, let's uh, fast forward now. You, um, you are, um, First of all, you impressed me and you impressed uh, one of my former grad students, Dr. Fidel Hernandez, who works for the Cesar Clayberg Wildlife Research Institute down in Kingsville. And so uh, between the two of us, we, uh, we, we were able to uh, tempt you back into the research mode and uh, tell us what you did for your master's degree.
1: So for my masters, we were, uh, we're looking at some of the indices and estimators that we use to estimate quail populations, specifically bobwhite, though I did kind of piddle with some of our scaled quail data at the research ranch. And some of the indices and the methods that we use to count quail are spring cock call counts, um, where we go out and listen for the bobwhite whistle. Uh, we use fall cubby counts, where in the fall, usually typically October, we're listening for fall cubby counts, how many cubbies we hear, at a spot. And um, we'll use roadside counts at the research ranch. And we also use helicopter surveys and trapping, intensive trapping um, in a mark recapture sense. Uh, and what we want it to know is that of these indices that are practical for land managers, like uh, spring cock call counts, fall covey counts, where we can just go out there and listen to the number of coveys we hear calling, which ones are the best predictors fall abundance how many birds we're going to have in the fall and where we're going to find them and this is important because it's it's expensive to do a lot of the things like uh, helicopter surveys but also there's a lot of variation in these counts and where those counts uh, how they I guess arise so you might hear even though the same number of birds are calling you might hear fewer than I am because of hearing acuity for example so there's variation by observer there's variation in calling rates, so at lower densities those birds might not be calling as much. And that's important because if we're uh, doing a translocation project, for example, and we want to see if there's a success of an area, a success, an increase of bobwhite on an area, and they're not calling at low densities, it would behoove us to know um, how those calling rates um, function as a, um, uh, vary as a function of density. But um, for the most part, my, my research from my master's um, delved into the relationship of those indices to what we consider estimators, where we have a better idea and we actually estimate the density of birds per acre on the landscape. So which of those uh, easier estim- indexes or indices um, was a good, had a, held a good correlation with strong density estimators.
2: And so of the various uh indices that we use, uh, let's use the spring cock call count as probably one of the most common ones. How accurate is it for estimating fall abundance?
1: Well, what I found was that, you know, it, it had a, a weak to moderate correlation when we heard a lot of cocks calling in the spring. And when I am say a lot, I'm talking about seven, eight, nine um, cocks per stop on average across the whole ranch. So that's from the month of uh, May to June, averaging all those sites across the ranch, 25 sites. When we have averaged more than six up to nine, we felt like it was gonna be a pretty good year. But when we really saw the increase from two to five cocks, uh, we had, for example, in 2013, 14, um, 12, 11, there wasn't a whole bunch of variation in the number of birds that we heard calling. Um, but there was an increase in bird population. So there there was basically no increase or no relationship at those low levels. And then when we heard a bunch, there was kind of a relationship. So it, it kind of gave us a really crude index of what we might expect in the fall.
2: Brad, one rule of thumb that I've often heard applied is, uh, and I'm talking about the fall Covey call counts. <laughs> is you take the number of coveys you're calling and you divide by 10 and that gives you a, a crude approximation of how many a, a bird density birds per acre. Did, did you look at that? Did that rule of thumb pan out at all?
1: I did look at that and the it, I didn't publish it as part of my of, of my thesis, but that the rule didn't pan out. And, and I believe personally that that rule didn't pan out because of that density dependent calling activity. Uh, For example, this year uh, on our site in Erath County uh, on the translocation site, which I'm serving on a a graduate committee for uh, John Polarski, he had a couple of uh, marked coveys in which he knew were out there, and he set up about 150 yards from that covey uh, before the the call count, uh, and none of them called. They did about 10 10 counts like that, and in no instance uh, did those coveys ever call. Of course, it was a very low density, and uh, back in 1967, a guy by the name of Alan Stokes did a research project, and he thought that, that the mechanism of this calling um, from Covey's was a spaking, spacing mes- mechanism, so uh, I guess it, it kind of lends to the idea of that if, if there's not a whole bunch of birds out there, there's no reason to call and uh, tell predators where you are, I guess, and to space yourself out if you know none of your kin pokes are in the area.
2: Another statistic that's been um, widely publicized coming out of South Texas and some of their work down at the Cedar-Clayberg Institute is that 93% of the annual variation in age ratios is caused by April through August rainfall. And as a, as a quail manager, you might say, well, why are we spending money on quail research if 93% of it is a function of rainfall, and we can't do anything about that. So I think you looked at that for the Rolling Plains, and what was that relationship like in the Rolling Plains?
1: Yeah, so I like to point out a couple things um, when we discuss that. The first thing is uh, we found about seventy-three percent of the variation in age ratios was related to the cumulative April to August rainfall. And I'm really pointed in when I say that is because we're talking about age ratios not abundance. So cumulative April to August rainfall. Um, it really depends on where you were the year before cause, uh, now Bob whites can reproduce rapidly, but they have to come from some remnant population. There has to be some sort of founders there and, and a fair amount of them. So if we have very few birds, we can only go up so much. So, uh, while there, there is a decent relationship with an age ratio metric, Um, there was a a pretty weak relationship with fall abundance and that cumulative April-August to rainfall.
2: And one other aspect of your thesis uh, dealt with a spatial analysis of where quail occur on the landscape. And again, using the data set that we've accumulated there at the research ranch over the last 11 years, knowing where quail kind of move to in the really hard times versus the better years like 2015 and 16. So give us a thumbnail sketch of what you learned from that.
1: Right, so what we did was we were looking at basically where we found our birds most often during different times of drought versus wet years. And during those drought drought periods, just in in short, we found most of our birds and trapped most of our birds in those thick woodier draws along our ridge, um, which is a, a rocky outcrop kind of area, about a 30-foot kind of escarpment, if you want to call it that. And uh, that's where most of our bobwhite were found. And if you, if you went out into the uplands, into the really open areas so with less brush cover, uh, there weren't a whole bunch of birds that we detected in those areas, most likely because there, there wasn't a whole bunch of cover, at least being served from the herbaceous level, and there wasn't a whole bunch of woody cover. So they were relying on that woody cover in those drought periods, Uh, for their form of cover as opposed to that herbaceous cover. In a wet year, herbaceous cover was flush across the landscape in which the bobwhite kind of expanded across the range and we found them everywhere and as a matter of fact, maybe more so in the open areas than the areas of woody cover. So that woody cover really had different virtues in different years.
2: So we'll hear people say at the low end you need 5% brush cover. Others will say up to 35% brush cover. Uh, I guess the point just being is there's no firm answer on that's what Dr. Guthrie would call slack in habitat, and and it can vary depending on the conditions. But I think it is important if the individual wants to remove a lot of brush across his whole landscape, that could have negative ramifications for bad years like we're in right now.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, I, I would believe that, you know, I would be keeping a few of the thicker motts for your, your, your hard times and your droughts. And of course, uh, huntability, huntability is always a, a, an important aspect for managers. So you have to have your open areas for the good years and the wet years where your herbaceous cover is going to serve the function of that, that woody cover as far as um, lateral cover, vertical cover and so on and so forth. Um, so we have to have diversity in both the brush species and brush configuration on the landscape for those different years.
2: I want to pause just a second here to talk about uh, one of the things that impresses me about Brad, and it's something you don't see in most graduate students today, and that uh, he has a real keen eye. He's a naturalist, and uh, whereas naturalists were very common when I was a student, and uh, you know, thirty, forty years ago, and we're going to talk in a minute about tall timbers and the the guy that was the Research guy down there, Herb Stoddard, was a naturalist. Uh, Somebody like a government trapper, they can read the landscape. Uh, I compliment Brad on his his naturalist abilities. But he has a very keen knowledge of plant identification. He's as good as just about anybody we're going to find on plants. And again, I I commend you on that. Who got you started on your love of botany and plants?
1: (laughs) I'd have to say you did. Really? Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, there's been some uh, key role models as far as plants that I've, I've learned a lot from of course you and through the quail master's programs if you haven't taken a quails, quail master's program if they continue to offer them if you continue to offer them and uh, I guess that's been offered through uh, Texas Wildlife Association and, and Texas A&M in the past um, through the uh, reversing the quail decline initiative but I, I would definitely encourage those that are listening to look into that program because there's a lot of big giants that, uh, that are there. For example, uh, Ricky Lennox with NRCS, uh, Kent Mills has been a great uh, influence and, and great resources, of course. Uh, there have been others at Tarleton that were good re- resources for me like Dr. Rogier. Just being able to follow, follow these um, folks and listen in the field and ask questions um, has has pretty much uh, got me where I've been, I guess.
2: Well, Brad, you're now working on your Ph.D. at the University of Georgia on a project in conjunction with Tall Timbers Research Station. Uh, Tell us what your project involves there.
1: So my project for my Ph.D. revolves around chick ecology, and chick ecology is a really broad term, kind of broad-encompassing, and when we think about ecology, um, ecology would define that as, uh, you know, the biotic and abiotic um, resources and conditions that uh, interact to affect a community and uh, so really what we're saying are what are all these factors that affect quail in specific um, this life stage of quail that we don't know a whole bunch about um, chicks and we don't know a whole much about quail chicks because they're hard to study in that they're dainty and they die easy um, but recently at tall timbers there's been some methods uh, that have been developed to more adequately track those chicks using miniature radio tags, different uh, banding techniques, miniature banding techniques on uh, the wings, and we can recapture those chicks in the fall and and, and look at different um, survival methods. But from that, uh, what I've I've been able to do is, um, because this is such a black box in quail management and quail research, um, it's an open book, and, and some of my research um, in, my, in my dissertation is to first look at different food items. If you ask a lot of folks what chicks eat, they could tell you they eat bugs, and that's about as far as they get um, when it comes to that, and we might be, get down to order um, as far as orthopterans or grasshoppers or um, coleopterans or beetles, but the, that group, coleopterans, for example, encompasses tens of thousands of insects so um, just saying that a chick eats a lot of beetles doesn't mean a whole bunch when beetles are one of the most common um, species on the face of the earth so what we're trying to understand is how our management on the back 40 affects uh, those quail foods availability what they're eating and uh, so for example in in the southeast of course burning uh, being very important in that area seeing how burning affects the frequency and prevalence of of these arthropod orders and down to the species of these arthropods in the diet. Um, We're using various different techniques. Of course, uh, DNA is something that we're using a lot, Uh, a technique called meta barcoding. I'm using eDNA or uh, various DNA in that passes through the gut. Before some of this research, if we were to look at diets of uh, chicks, we had two routes, one, collect chicks and kill them and collect the crops and, and look in the gizzards and you get a snapshot of what they ate that period. And it's it's pretty cruel because our chicks are a limited resource and we don't really wanna do that. The second route that we could use is to look at the feces and look at what passed through the gut tract and see what passed through undigested and try to decipher undigested um, stuff what, what did they eat? Of course, that's a pretty crude metric in that there's a lot of soft-bodied insects like caterpillars and, and plant material that we can't detect um, macroscopically with our naked eye. So what we have to do is maybe use DNA. And now that we have this um, technique called meta-barcoding, we can get feces, blasted against an basically international barcode of life and see if something's been sequenced before. If it doesn't have a match, we can say it's 99% related to this ambrosia species. It might not be Western ragweed, but maybe it's common ragweed or something like that. So start to look at what they're eating and where. So uh, one, of that, one of those, those concepts being uh, uh, insects and arthropods um, in general, but also sorghum. And one of the, the components of, of quail management program in the Southeast is, is feeding. So I want to know, and one of my predictions might be, is that in in a burned, uh, in a non-burned block, I might suspect that sorghum would be more prevalent in those diets in a rough block where we might presume that arthropods are in lower availability, so they're kind of, um, I guess you could say, compensating for that. Um, Might not be a great indicator, but we'll know that they are using it, um, and whether that's good, bad, or indifferent, is for the next person to find out. So that, that part of the um, project has to do with feeding. And then of course, uh, <laughs> there's a couple other chapters to my project and which we're looking at uh, movements and survival and uh, roosting locations. So for the last couple of years, we looked at every single roosting location of about 62 broods, collected over 1,600 roost locations, collected the vegetation at uh, many of those sites collected temperature at those sites, and of course, collected the fecal samples for the diet study. And we started looking at uh, how those birds were moving between roost locations. Uh, and of course, uh, trying to link that back to, uh, or are they choosing these uh, roost locations because of predation or because of food resources, um, what's driving a lot of those things. Surprisingly, we've been finding that a lot of these depredations of these chicks are occurring at night. Um, more so than we would expect, the number of hours in day in the day uh, in the summer, for example, this time of year, uh, you know, it's a 24-hour day, and there's 10 hours of the day is daylight. We might expect, or 14 hours of the day is uh, daylight, 10 hours at night. So we would per- expect proportionally that number of uh, predation events to occur at the daytime and night. And what we've really found is about 72% of our predation events, at least in 2019 occurred at night as opposed to the day. Um, So that roosting component is important. And of course, the last chapter of my thesis is is to look at some of the detection uh, probabilities we have of of chicks and the conventional methods that we use, say at the research ranch, going and doing flush counts, seeing how many chicks we count, and uh, how that relates to um, how many are actually on the range, range, uh, for example. Bob White typically dump or amalgamate or adopt chicks. So, if they were to dump these chicks, we're not going to count those chicks whenever we flush that hen 21 days after they hatch. And so, conventionally, we would say those chicks didn't survive. Um, what we're finding currently is that we only detect about 30% of the chicks that are actually still alive at 21 days of age. Uh, because we have this uh, this miniature radio tag on these chicks so we know where they are we know what they're um, what they're doing and when we go in and flush that adult whether they flush or not we can start looking at parameters that affect that detection were those chicks actually with the hen or did she dump those and give them to a cockbird to nest or uh, was the vegetation thick and we didn't um, detect them because of that we're also looking at variation observer counts you might count five um, birds when they flush and i might count seven so starting to unravel how do we start estimating the survival of chicks and uh, what they're doing on the landscape where they're moving how they're surviving what they're eating it's a large task but we've got to start somewhere
2: as you mentioned chick ecology is is maybe the last real black box in our knowledge of bob white management And the figure that we use here on the western edge is some of the work done by Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation on the pack saddle area that suggested that about uh, the survival rate from hatch to 39 days of age was about 40%. So what are your estimates down there suggesting as far as chick survival?
1: Well, you know, there's actually a paper that um, speaks to this that uh, my advisor, Dr. Theron Terhune, published this last year in the Journal of Wildlife Management that looked at some of that stuff and and their estimates were close to 30 some odd percent, 35, um, uh, and of course 35% varied by year to the fall from their their hatch, basically 12 days of age until uh, when we trapped them in the fall. So that was a little different technique. We weren't um, tracking those individuals with radio telemetry, not the chicks at least, Um, but we were recapturing them in the fall after we had already tagged them in the spring as chicks with these miniature wing bands. Um, So what what he found was uh, in the 30 odd some odd percent. And what they also found was something really interesting. In the years that they saw population growth was also the years that they saw higher chick survival. And and that's why uh, one of the mottos and one of the things that we we often tout is a 10% increase in chick survival could increase fall populations by 24%. And you could do the math on that, um, but the, the great idea is that if we can increase and we can figure out some things that affect chick survival, then uh, maybe that could really affect uh, the way we think about quail management.
2: Brad, you've had the opportunity over the last six, seven years to uh, spend time out at the Rolling Plains. Uh, you did your classwork for your masters down in uh, Kingsville, so the Rio Grande Plains. The two last bastions of, of wild bob whites on the western fringe anyway and now you're down at tall timbers and tall timbers has got a uh a hallowed story of quail management ever since the 1920s when herb Stodder did his pioneering research what commonalities again you're you're maybe one of the only people i know that could say you've served a tour of duty in each one of the those three locations are there any commonalities between those three
1: you know there are multiple commonalities, I would say. You know, and I think I read at one point, Fred Guthrie, right? A Bob White is a Bob White is a Bob White. But when it comes to management, I would have to disagree wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly on that. Uh, management in the southeast is not management in the west. Um, everything that we do in the southeast, I feel, is um, very different in the Midwest. Mainly because we're getting 60 inches of rainfall each year. We have to burn every other year. Whereas in the Midwest, we're at risk of depleting more habitat than we want to. If we run too many cattle, so we disturb too much. We almost don't have that issue um, in the southeast. Uh, you know, some of the, com- some of the differences, I guess I would say, I, I, guess I should have started with that was, uh, you know, I see differences in behavior as far as incubation times when the birds leave nest um, earlier in the day and in the southeast as opposed to later in the day in the rolling plains, of course, it's hotter later in the day in an open environment in the west but uh as far as commonalities you know the culture the passion for quail um anywhere you go that have good quail populations the people love it and that culture that you had mentioned with uh, herb stoddard the culture that the research ranch is growing right now and, and that south texas has grown it's it, it occurs in every one of those places and something that i hope that we're able to copy and paste across uh, more of the landscape
2: well we certainly look forward to uh continuing to see what you do with tall timbers and uh, we always tip our cap to tall timbers for the legacy that they have and the good work they're continuing to do and by recruiting uh, young students young sharp students like yourself and we hope we hadn't seen the last of you in west texas so hopefully you'll come back to see us sometime in west texas
0: thank you dr rollins and thank you brad for your time today uh, terrific information on quail research and the efforts that Uh, All are taking right now to better understand quail and manage quail in our state. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau, thanking you for your time today. If you have interest in past episodes of Dr. Dale on quail, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org, and you'll be able to access those previous podcasts there. Thank you for your time. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau, looking forward to our visit next time.
1: Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and
0: fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at gordiansons.com.